Hi, this is Glenn in your MSMU online course, CHE1A. This is episode one of the podcast. Thank you for your feedback in the graded surveys indicating that this podcast would be useful. There is a quiz on your week one material. Thank you for working on the week one material. The quiz will happen next week after you've finished working with your week one material. Uh, I think you'll find in the web assigned work for the rest of this week that at the end of each question, just underneath each question in WebAssign, there will be a link to the relevant section of the online textbook. So you can find the answer to your WebAssign question using that link in the textbook. You can also just ask Mrs. Google. She may know the answers too. However, when you take your quiz, which will be next week, you will not be allowed to use Google or your online textbook. So there are certain things that you'll have to commit to your memory before you take the quiz. And in this podcast, I'm about to tell you what things you need to commit to your memory. Now, first of all, um, in chapter one, um, somewhere in the middle of chapter one, there is a lot of discussion of physical and chemical changes. I'd like you to... um, be well-versed in the differences between the physical and chemical changes. For example, when you boil water, water is H2O. Every piece of water, I mean the smallest piece of water, would be a single water molecule, H2O. Two hydrogen atoms chemically bonded or stuck to one oxygen atom. That would be the smallest piece of water. You can't cut water any smaller than an H2O molecule, because if you tried that, it wouldn't be water anymore. So when you boil water, you're taking water from the liquid state and putting it into the gas state. However, it's still H2O. It's H2O in the gas state and H2O in the liquid state. That means a physical change has occurred, not a chemical change. In a chemical change, the molecule itself is different. So for example, when you caramelize sugar, it used to be white, or if the sugar is um, dissolved in water, it used to be clear and colorless. But after you caramelize it, it is not clear, it is not colorless, it's now dark brown or, or, or even black if you overdo it, I guess. That is not sugar anymore. It may taste sweet, but that would only be because there is some residual sugar molecules left. The actual brown or black stuff probably doesn't taste sweet. In fact, I have tried that black stuff. The black stuff tastes bitter. Sorry. So that is not sugar. That is a chemical change. What about when you eat food? If you eat, let's say, a banana, three hours later in your body, is it still a banana? Probably not. A chemical change has occurred. So now, with these physical and chemical changes, there is one thing that I think the textbook failed to mention. I might be wrong about this, but um, I think it isn't there. And that is an important scientific law. This is the law of conservation of matter. The law of conservation of matter is important because uh, apparently anything you do in the world uh, follows this law. And... Uh, The law of conservation of matter says that if you do some change, none of the matter, none of the material that you changed is going to disappear. And what's more, there is not going to be any new material that's going to appear out of nothing. So for example, when I caramelize sugar, none of that black stuff 
appeared from nothing. It came from the sugar, you know? And actually, when I caramelize sugar, none of that sugar actually disappears. It just changes into that black stuff. I know that seems like common sense, but in chemistry, it's very important. Later on in the course, you'll be balancing chemical equations. And the whole reason why balancing chemical equations works is because of the law of conservation of matter. Also in this course, you're going to notice that uh, some lies are told. Some lies are told here because it is uh, easier for you to learn uh, major concepts if they're simplified a bit. I have just told you a lie. The law of conservation of matter is not generally true in the universe. Uh, the more complicated law, called the law of conservation of mass energy, is actually true. But uh, I do not think um, we will be encountering the law of conservation of mass energy in this course. So, uh, for now, all you need to understand is that in nature, you cannot create matter. You cannot destroy matter. All you can do is change existing matter. When you make that change, you're going to have the same amount of material at the end as you begin with. I mean, as you began with. <laughs> There's no such thing as begin. <laughs> okay, so that is the law of conservation of matter. Um, now, well, let's see. Uh, there's another thing that is important uh, for your quiz for chapter one. You need to know the differences. I mean, the technical differences between solids, liquids, and gases. So, a solid, right? I mean, if you have kids, you can ask your kids the differences between solids, liquids, and gases. They may have it from uh, from their from their school lessons. A solid, if you have a solid, let's say an ice cube, right? It has a shape. It's a cube. I can put that cube on the table. I can put it in a cup. I can put it on my head. It's still a cube as long as it's still frozen, right? So a solid has a definite shape. A solid also has a definite volume because... If I put an ice cube on my head, as long as, it's, as long as it stays ice, as long as it's still frozen, that ice cube is going to stay the same size, right? So this, is, this is kind of common sense, but uh, it's important to get these details down because uh, the differences between the solid, liquid, and gas, the technical differences, are very important for you to understand at the molecular level what the atoms and molecules are doing. Right? Now, what about a liquid? Does a liquid have its own shape? No, because if I put a liquid into a star-shaped cup, well, the liquid is going to be star-shaped, right? I mean, I think you've done this this summer. Again, if you have kids, I, I have kids, and so this is why these all these these examples come to mind. If you make a uh, apple juice popsicle or a smoothie popsicle, right, and you put the liquid into, let's say, a cylindrical mold, well you're going to end up with a cylindrical liquid until that thing freezes. And then it's going to be a cylindrical solid. So a liquid doesn't have its own shape. It's, it takes whatever shape you, you put it in. And, but does liquid have its own volume? If I have a cup of water... Oh, sorry about that noise. If I have a cup of water, one cup of water, and I put that into a two-cup container, does it now become two cups? No, right? So water has its own definite shape. I mean, definite volume. Water does not, a liquid does not have its definite shape, but a liquid does have a definite volume. What about a gas? Suppose I breathe into a balloon, yes? Um, uh, 
does my breath have a definite shape? No, right? Because if you have one of those long clown balloons where you can twist it into the shape of an animal, my breath takes that long shape. However, if you have a round balloon that you can bounce around like a beach ball, well, then my breath takes the shape of that ball. Or if you have a cube, an inflatable cube, or an inflatable rectangular prism, rectangular prism such as, let's say, um, a raft, you know, a, a swimming pool raft. It is approximately a rectangular prism. And if I blow it up with my own breath, which would take forever and make me dizzy, but if I did that, my breath would take the shape of that rectangular prism or that raft. So my breath, uh, a gas, does not have its own shape. Does it have its own volume? Ah, see, now that's something that's not quite common sense. Does my breath or any gas have its own volume? Well, now let's think about that. Um, if you have a container and that container has no air in it, and then you put air in there, what volume will that air take? Hmm. I know that you've done this before. Uh, there is a, uh, a, a can or a jar of spaghetti sauce, let's say, or a jar of, of, of peanut butter, or, or some sealed vacuum-packed jar, right? You open that jar by twisting the cap, and then suddenly uh, the top of the cap pops up, and uh, you can push that back down. You hear that? I'm pushing down the top of an opened spaghetti sauce jar. Okay, now... That top pops up because now there is air in the jar. Before, there was no air in the jar, or there was almost no air in the jar because it was vacuum-sealed or vacuum-packed. Now, the air that's in this jar is taking what volume? It's taking the volume of the jar, right? What if I put this same amount of air into a smaller jar by compressing it? Can I do that? Oh, yes. Yes, I can do that. And how can I do that? Here. If I just get a, um, a very flexible piece of rubber or plastic, such as a latex glove, and I put it over the jar, I now have trapped in this jar with this plastic or latex, I have trapped in this jar some air. That air is the same volume as the jar. But see, if I push that glove or piece of plastic, which is sealing the jar, if I push it into the jar, see, the air cannot escape because I have sealed the jar with this latex glove. But I am decreasing the size of the jar by pressing into the jar on that latex glove. That means the jar is no longer the same size. That means the air in the jar is now taking up a smaller volume. Does that make sense? That was very easy for me to do. I'm just using my thumb. Now, I can also, in the same way, pull out that latex glove while still ha holding the jar sealed. So when I pull out that latex glove, I have now increased the size of the space that is in the jar. That means the air in that jar is now taking up a larger space, a larger volume. So that same amount of air is now taking up a larger volume. So as you could, as you can imagine, 
if you just use a latex glove and a spaghetti jar in your imagination, uh, air or any gas doesn't have a definite volume. It will take whatever volume you let it take, as long as you have your container sealed. So though that's the elementary school uh, kind of understanding of solids, liquids, and gases. Um, I need you to uh, take a look at the pictures in your textbook of solids, liquids, and gases and um, get a feel for what the particles are doing. By particles, I mean the individual atoms and molecules in solids, liquids, and gases. Let me give you um, a few more details about the solids. In a solid, the reason why a solid has its own definite shape and its own definite uh, volume is because the particles, or the molecules and the atoms, the particles of a solid are locked together in place. They can't slide by each other very much. Each particle is able to do some vibration, some back and forth motion or up and down. Any motion is allowed that still keeps the particle locked in place. That's why a solid um, has its own definite shape and its own definite volume. Of course, you can change the shape of some solids if they're flexible. If you have, let's say, one of those plastic swimming noodles, one of those uh, foam plastic swimming noodles, you can bend that, right? If you have a flexible straw, you can bend that. If you have a plastic grocery bag, the type that has been outlawed in Los Angeles for, um, for grocery stores. You can stretch that. These um, stretching, bending, and, um, and other uh, events of flexing a solid material, in these events, you are um, l forcing some particles to slide by each other. Typically, that is only possible for a special type of solid called amorphous solids. There are two types of solids, amorphous solids and crystalline solids. Amorphous solids, these flexible things, uh, are made up of particles that are locked into place. I mean, they can't slide by each other, but there is no definite pattern. There's no definite pattern to the way the molecules or the particles are stacked up next to each other. Because there is no pattern, if you use enough force, you can force some of those molecules, some of those particles, to slide by each other. And that will allow the whole material to bend or to flex or to get a dent in it or something like that. Okay? So these are amorphous solids. The particles are arranged in no definite pattern. So with enough force, you can cause them to slide by each other just temporarily during the moment when you're applying that force. Those are amorphous solids. The street that you're driving on right now, probably, the asphalt, right? That is also an amorphous solid. That's why the, um, the paving crew is able to pave the street with it. Whether the street is flat or curved, the way most streets are, um, whether, the, whether the street is straight narrow, wide, they could pave that with the same black asphalt paving material because that black asphalt is an amorphous solid. So, crystalline solids. 
The crystalline solids are things that won't allow the particles to slide by each other, even if you give it a lot of force. For example, a sugar crystal or a salt crystal. Have you ever tried to break a sugar crystal? Uh, if not, I recommend you try this. Um, if you have a sugar crystal, actually, sugar is kind of small. If you go to the drugstore and get some Epsom salts, those crystals are large. If you break the Epsom salt crystal, I think you'll find that you end up with smaller Epsom salt crystals. This is because crystalline solids are made of particles that are locked in place next to each other in a definite pattern. So the definite pattern, the non-random pattern of a crystalline solid causes that solid to not respond when you try to force it to bend or when you try to force it to stretch. If you try to, to force a crystalline solid to bend or stretch, instead of bending and stretching, it will just break. And the reason is, as soon as you move just a few of those particles, molecules or atoms, if you just move a few of those particles outside of their regular repeating structure, their pattern, if you move them outside of that pattern, that's just, they're just going to break. It's going to cause uh, a fissure or a crack in the pattern, and that's a weakness, and it's going to break the whole crystal. So um, that's how crystalline solids work. Um, that, that structure is often called a crystal lattice. Crystal lattice is not the important vocabulary term here. The important terms here are amorphous solid and crystalline solid. So... Um, that's, um, I think that's all I need you to remember for solids, liquids, and gases uh, for now. There will be a lot more detail about the gases because the gases are um, the most interesting of these three phases uh, as far as our class is concerned. All right. Uh, let's see. There is something else you need to know for this quiz, and that is the classification of matter. Pure substances, mixtures... Uh, heterogeneous mixtures, homogeneous mixtures. These appear in chapter one, and these also appear on the quiz. Let me tell you. When you prepare food at home, or when you eat, right, what is it that you're eating? Are you eating some mixtures, or are you eating some pure substances? Let's start with some milk. Suppose you like milk in your coffee, or suppose you like ice cream or something. Is milk a pure substance, or is that a mixture? Well, you know milk comes from some animal, right? Or let's say even with soy milk, it, it could come from some plant, right? So where do plants and animals get their liquid? That's right, water. So milk probably contains water, whether it's soy milk or cow milk or goat milk. But milk is not water. So right there, boom, it is not a pure substance. It is water mixed with other stuff, so it's not a pure substance. Now, what if you didn't know that milk contained water, or you were not sure? I mean, if you ask any middle schooler, they won't actually know if milk contains water. Some will say, oh, well, no, milk doesn't contain water because it's milk. Okay, so what if you didn't know? Milk has protein. This much, I think, we all know. Milk has fat. We know that because there is non-fat, low-fat, and whole milk. Okay, so boom, right there. It has more than one thing. It has protein, it has fat. That's two things. This is not a pure substance. It is a mixture. Okay? 
Now, what kind of mixture is milk? Is it homogeneous or is it heterogeneous? Now, folks, with milk, this is a little bit controversial. Yes, there's drama right here in chapter one. If your milk doesn't separate, and if you if you assume that the top of the if you take a sip from the top of the milk, and then you use a straw to take a sip from the bottom of the milk, if the top and the bottom of the milk are identical, if they're even chemically identical, I think you can say that milk is a homogeneous mixture. Now there are some textbooks that will say that milk is not a homogeneous mixture. And that's for two reasons. And the first reason is the particle size in milk. Milk is made up of fat droplets and uh, protein just uh, aggregations, just large groups of protein molecules all stuck together, and protein and fat aggregations. So a bunch of fat molecules in the middle of a bunch of protein molecules. These, these are called micelles, but that's not important right now. Protein is made, I mean, uh, milk is made of a whole bunch of pretty large particles floating around in the water. How do you know they're large? Well, can you see through milk? You can't, right? That's how you know the particles are large. So in some textbooks, whenever the particles are large enough to make it so you can't see through the liquid, that's automatically a heterogeneous mixture. Why? Because if you take a, a microscopic drop from inside that milk liquid, you might get more particles at the top than at the bottom, or you might get more particles, more of those fat and protein droplets from the bottom than from the top. Do you know what I mean? It's just these particles are so large that if you take a tiny sample of the milk, anywhere in the milk, you might get some different number of particles or maybe even no particles if your sample is tiny enough compared to taking that same size sample in some other location of that same um, milk container. But uh, for the purposes of this class, um, you don't need to be involved in the homogeneous or heterogeneous controversy of milk. Uh, in chapter 11, there is a, um, there, there is a, there's some more extensive discussion of mixtures that are like milk. These are called colloids, but uh, we won't be covering chapter 11 in, in this class. So um, let's go for a simpler example, such as apple juice. Now, when you drink apple juice, what are you drinking? If you look at the ingredients of apple juice, of just regular off-the-shelf commercial ap apple juice, not your organic or unfiltered, just, you know, just the regular stuff. The stuff that is available to WIC customers, in fact. So that apple juice, in the ingredients, it usually says apple juice concentrate and water. Oh, so boom, right there. It is a mixture. It is not a pure substance. It is water and apple juice concentrate. Now let's see what kind of mixture is apple juice. Now, apple juice is something that I could see through. So if you could see through it, that indicates the particle size of the mixture is very small. In fact, if you can see through it, that indicates that the particle size is, is unimolecular, meaning the molecules in apple juice are mixed in such a way that one molecule at a time is floating around in the water. That's why you could see through apple juice. Let's get 
Um, so, so because the particle size is so small, and because apple juice is the same color at the top as at the bottom of the container, and because apple juice is not something that you need to shake well before serving, we can conclude that apple juice is a homogeneous mixture. It is a solution, a homogeneous mixture. Of course, you can find all these details in the textbook in chapter one. Now, a solution is a homogeneous mixture that is special because the, 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 the molecules of that mixture are separated one molecule at a time. It's just one molecule at a time floating around. It isn't clumps of molecules the way milk is. No, it's just individual molecules all separated. Let's get even simpler than apple juice. Let's go for sugar water. I got a cup of water. I put a teaspoon of sugar in there. And what do I get? Well, the sugar falls to the bottom and the water's on top. So right now, this is a heterogeneous mixture. There's sugar on the bottom and there's no sugar on the top. Heterogeneous mixture. But all I got to do, all I need to do is stir that up, maybe heat it up a little bit, wait a little while, and all of a sudden, the sugar is gone. I don't see the sugar anymore. I could see straight through this cup of sugar water. I mean, um, there, nothing has happened to the color or the transparency. It looks like the sugar is gone. But is it gone? I take a taste. Actually, do I have some here? Mm -mm -mm. sugar water so I take a taste and no the sugar is not gone it's still there that sugar is dissolved this is a solution the sugar is just floating around one molecule at a time so that's uh, that is uh, a homogeneous mixture a solution is a homogeneous mixture it's the same sugar water at the top as it is at the bottom I can put this in the fridge drink it tomorrow I do not need to shake it let me ask you something, folks. Orange juice. Now, I don't care if we're talking about fresh squeezed orange juice or orange juice from concentrate. Is that a pure substance or is that a mixture? And then, if it's a mixture, right? Is it a homogeneous mixture or is that a heterogeneous mixture? Do you need to shake orange juice? Okay, so... Um, I think those are the important terms for the quiz. Um, there are also uh, there's also this um, there's also that this uh, a whole set of calculation ideas that you need to know. Um, in chapter one, there is some discussion of SI units. This is in section 1-4 of chapter 1, the measurements section. Now, SI units um, are called SI because um, they come from French. It's like système international or something like that. Um, this is on page 32, page 32 of the textbook. There are There's a list of base units for the SI system. I need you to know this list of base units, okay? I'm talking about memorization. I need you to memorize this list of base units. Now, um, there are some units that are going to be more important than other units. So, uh, let me just tell you the units that uh, are most important for us. For us, they are length, mass, time, and uh, temperature, and amount of substance, right? 
length, mass, time, temperature, and amount of substance. So the names of the units are uh, meter, uh, kilogram, uh, seconds, kelvin, and mole. These are the SI units. Meter, kilogram, seconds, kelvin, and mole. There are two more units in Table 1.2 on page 32 of your textbook for electric current and luminous intensity. But uh, in, in this class, um, we're not going to be working with those two units. So let me uh, help you to understand why this is important. When you are presented with a measurement in meters or centimeters or any kind of meters, nanometers, millimeters, micrometers, it's important to know that that means how long something is. It doesn't mean how much something weighs. It doesn't mean um, the, the, the volume of something. It doesn't mean the area. It just means how long it is. That's all it means. Okay. Now, if you have square meters, like meters squared, centimeters squared, millimeters squared, that means the area. If you have cubic meters, like meters cubed, centimeters cubed, millimeters cubed, that means the volume. So these are all things that come from the base unit meter, which is for length. The base unit in the SI system is kilogram. Kilogram means 1,000 grams. I know you would usually think that gram should be the base unit, right? But in the SI system, kilogram is the base unit, not because kilogram is the most basic unit of mass, that would be the gram, but uh, it is because kilogram is the most common unit of mass for humans, because a kilogram is about 2.2 pounds, and this is the kind of mass that we work with on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, um, mass, the concept of mass, it is not the same as weight, but it is very similar. Mass is the amount of matter that you have, okay? It, it is the, the, the amount of any matter. Now, um, when I say amount of matter, I don't mean amount of substance, uh, because uh, the amount of substance is a, is a bit more specific. Let me skip down to the word mole here. The name of the unit is mole, and that's the amount of substance. Now, the, the mole, or the amount of substance, is different from mass, the amount of matter, because the mole is a count, or an approximate count. It is an approximate count of the molecules, or the particles. The mole is actually a specific number. Do you know how many, how many um, objects are in a pair of objects? That's right, it's just two, right? How many objects are in a dozen objects? That's right. Now, how many objects are in a mole of objects? It's the same thing. So there's two things in a pair. There are 12 things in a dozen. And in a mole, there are 6.02 times 10 to the 23rd power things. It's just, that, that's just what it is. It's 6.02 times 10 to 23rd. That's how many things there are in a mole. That's what a mole is. You could have a mole of cars. There wouldn't be room on this planet for a mole of cars. But you could have a mole of cars. You could have a mole of sugar molecules. That would be a lot of sugar molecules. A mole of sugar molecules would weigh something like 380 grams, which would be almost a pound of sugar. That would be a mole of sugar molecules. So in chemistry, we use the mole a lot because it is a convenient way to count or to express a count of uh, 
uh, or an approximate count actually of uh, atoms and molecules the mole is nothing is nothing that is actually new to you i mean it's not a it's not a new type of measurement the way let's say an ampere would be for electric current um, the, the mole is just a count or an approximate count just the same as a pair or a dozen it's just a special number 6.02 times 10 to the 23rd right, now let, let, let's go skip back to um, seconds and time uh, well no explanation is needed there let's go back to Kelvin for temperature the base unit in the SI system is Kelvin for temperature the Kelvins are interesting because they have the same spacing as degrees Celsius uh, the difference between 10 degrees Celsius and 11 degrees Celsius is the same as the difference between 10 Kelvin and 11 Kelvin. Kelvin is based on the Celsius scale. It's just moved over. Excuse me. So the Kelvin scale is moved over by 273 degrees. So zero Kelvin is negative 273 degrees Celsius. Uh, 25 degrees Celsius is positive 298 Kelvin. If that seems confusing to you, don't worry about it right now. All you need to know for now is that on the SI system, uh, Kelvin is the base unit for, uh, for temperature. We're going to use Kelvin a lot when we study gases. There is a chapter, um, I think it may be in week four or somewhere near there, where all we study is gases, and we'll be using Kelvin. In fact, if you try to use degrees Celsius when we're studying gases, you'll probably end up with a very wrong answer. So um, that those are the base units for the SI system. And um, you also need to know how to, uh, how to get derivatives of those units, how to get I'm not talking about calculus derivatives. I'm talking about units that come from those. For example, the meter is the base unit. You need to know um, what is the meaning of a centimeter, a micrometer, a millimeter, a kilometer. You need to know how to use those prefixes. So, um, those prefixes are on page uh, 33 of your textbook. And they are at the top in table 1.3. So the prefixes start with femto, that's the smallest, and go up to tera, and that's the largest. Um, let me see here on the, let, let me see exactly which prefixes are going to be most important for us in this class. Uh, the milli prefixes are going to be very important. Uh, I mean the milli prefix. And the cente prefix is going to be very important and it may be the case that the nano prefix could become important the kilo prefix is important and the pico may be important okay so i'll say these important ones again they are the nano which is um 10 to the minus 9th, the milli, which is 10 to the minus 3, the centi, which is 10 to the minus 2, and the kilo, which is 10 to the 3rd power, 
are the imp oh and the pico the pico which is 10 to the minus 12th power these are the important prefixes which you should commit to memory for this class when i say commit to memory here is exactly what i mean if you have a pico liter you need to know that there are 1 times 10 to the 12th picoliters in 1 liter. 1 times 10 to the 12th power picoliters are in 1 liter. 1 times 10 to the 12th picometers are in 1 meter. 1 times 10 to the 12th picograms are in 1 gram. You, you see how this is going, right? If you have pico anything, 1 times 10 to the 12th of those things are in one of that thing, okay? On table 1.3, um, where these prefixes are listed, they do this in a different style. If it, You can choose either way. You can also say that 1 times 10 to the negative 12 liters is 1 picoliter. Picoliters are, pico is very, very, very small. To give you an example of how small this is, one picometer wouldn't even be the diameter of a big atom. Like an atom would be much more than one picometer wide, all right? A, a big atom would be a few nanometers wide. So that's how small a picometer is. So, there are a lot of picometers in one meter. There are a lot of picograms in one gram. There are 10 to the 12th of them, okay? Now, if you prefer to do this by the book, that is um, just equally um, acceptable. I mean, it's just based on your personal preference. If you prefer to think of one liter if you prefer to think of 1 times 10 to the minus 12 liters being 1 picoliter, that's okay too. 1 times 10 to the minus 12 liters is 1 picoliter. What about nano? Nano is 10 to the 9th. So the way I like to think of this is 1 with 9 zeros after it. That's how many nanometers there are in 1 meter. So that's 1 times 10 to the 9th nanometers are in 1 meter. You could also say 1 times 10 to the negative ninth meters is 1 nanometer. Nanometers are very, very small. If you took a piece of light, the tiniest piece of light that you could possibly have and still have light, that piece of visible light would be a few hundred nanometers wide. So that's how small a nanometer is. Um, let's take a look at... Uh, milli, the millimeters. Millimeters uh, are, um, there are a thousand millimeters in one meter. So that means there are a, the, the, uh, one thousandth of a meter is the same as one millimeter. I prefer to, th to use it uh, like this. There are one thousand millimeters in one meter. What about centi? There are 100 centimeters in one meter. Uh, the book um, shows it to you like this. One hundredth or ten to the minus two meters is one centimeter. What about kilo? 
there are a thousand meters in a kilometer. Notice this is the opposite of milli. A kilo is really big. So there are a thousand meters in a kilometer. I mean, that's almost, and that's very similar to a thousand yards. So a kilo is large. There are a thousand grams in a kilogram. There are a thousand liters in a kiloliter. That's a lot. So those are the um, the unit prefixes, the, um, the the derivatives of the of, of the SI system that you're going to need to know how to use. Now, there's one other thing about this: when you're trying to convert these things, you need to use the factor label method or dimensional analysis. If you go on YouTube and look for factor label conversions (SI units) or dimensional analysis. SI units, there are a whole bunch of people who are just dying to show you how to do these conversions. Uh, if you don't use the factor label method to convert between units that are SI units, uh, that is okay, but it, it might be a little confusing when the calculations become more involved later in the course. So I recommend that you get used to the factor label or the dimensional analysis method. That is the method that is used in our textbook, the factor label or dimensional analysis method. I will post a short video uh, about how to convert units um, in the canvas today. And um, I want you to watch that video, please, because if you don't watch that video, of course, I will not post any more videos. This actually happened to me in my previous online class. But um, uh, I hope that you will let me help you in, in, through the videos in, in this class. Now, let's see. What else is on this quiz? Uh, okay, significant figures. I think you're well-versed by now in significant figures. That is on the quiz. And then, um, let's see. Uh, uh, calculations using significant figures that's on the quiz I will post a short video about calculations involving significant figures on the canvas please look for that video tonight I will post it by I will probably post it um, by noon today but uh, just in case please have a look sometime after noon today uh, to find that video and then there is a uh, there is a, there are a couple of calculation problems on the quiz, right? The calculation problems involve converting between units. I will post a video about that. Well, actually, I already said that, right? And the video that I post regarding fact, the factor label or dimensional analysis method of converting between units, that is a video that will help you with the calculation problems that are on the quiz. Okay, if there are questions, please send them to me by email. My email address is gchung at msmu.edu. If you don't ask questions, then I cannot help you, and you will be sad. Please be sure to ask questions. I should get a question from each of you at some point. I hope this week. If not this week, then next week. Every one of you. Thank you.